Welcome, everyone, to Keep Calm and Carry On. I am your host, Daniel Paris. In the course of my career, uh, while I'm chatting with colleagues or clients, more than a few people have asked about my background in Soviet history. They are puzzled. How did I get from being a historian of modern Russia to a stock portfolio manager focused on dividend investing? Where's the link? Well, there is no obvious link, but there is a less obvious story about how empowering changing careers can be, how useful it is to be a historian in a profession that has a dismally low historical sensibility. It basically comes down to perspective. I've made this point numerous times, but my guest today can make the same point 10 times over. He is William Getzman. He is a professor of finance at Yale University, a very interesting fellow. Will, thank you so much for, for agreeing to be on the show. Uh, Daniel, I'm pleased to be on the show, and I'm uh, excited to explore this uh, different topic with you. Usually, I'm focused on uh, questions about modern finance, so um, this should be fun. Yes, and for those of you uh, listening in looking for stock tips, uh, you can disconnect right now because there, there won't be any here. Those of you looking for sort of long-durée investment advice, uh, hang on. But specifically, this is really about career changes and perspective on what we do in our careers and how that can be helpful, particularly in an environment, Will, I think you'll agree with me, that so many professionals, regardless of what the profession may be, are siloed from a fairly early age if they have an undergraduate degree, a master's, a PhD in a particular discipline, and they tend to stick with it, and the society rewards them to do that. But uh, I have found, and I think you have found, that jumping over some boundaries has turned out to be a, a, a very useful uh, exercise. Yeah, surprisingly so. So let's let's start a little bit with your background. You have a, a you describe your interest in, in art history, archaeology, and your early career as a television, movie, internet producer. You know who were you before you made the big jump? Sure, I grew up in a academic household, so um, I had a background in uh, history and literature and the arts. And I really began my life thinking that that's where I would end up. Uh, and um, in my college years, I, I got a uh, degree in art history and archaeology, but I spent most of my summers during college in the field in South Texas, uh, excavating and searching for ancient remains and so forth. So it was quite a bit of fun um, and um, required a uh, you know, a facility with the out of doors and so forth, a bit, a bit of adventure. And um, then, uh, you know, as you go through college, uh, you see people picking careers and so forth. I never got around to that. Uh, and I just followed my interests and, and, and curiosity. And that led me into um, documentary filmmaking, um, really, because of the, uh, the potential of, of making films about art history and archaeology and, you know, me being a, a researcher at the beginning. So um, I guess you'd say the early part of my professional life was almost being an apprentice to a documentary filmmaker and working at WNET in New York. Um, and, um, you know, one thing I can say about filmmaking is that, particularly documentary filmmaking, is that you have to learn how to um, get excited about a new topic every time a new subject comes along. You need to be able to dive into it, try and understand who um, whose opinions are, are important. And, 
you know, it's a journalistic kind of uh, business. And so I think that was good uh, preparation. Thomas Aikens, early on, a I'm from Philadelphia, so the the Gross Clinic is in in Philadelphia. Your range of art is also quite interesting. There's southwestern art in your your record, and then there's there's kind of classic French and classic uh, modern uh, uh, modern meaning nineteenth and early twentieth century American art as well. So it's it's quite a wide range uh, in in those endeavors that the uh, PBS Master Series involving artists. Uh, yes, yeah, some of that was my choice. Uh, other things were just assignments that we had an opportunity to make um, to make documentaries about uh, t- Thomas Aikens and Augustus St. Gaudens, who was a sculptor who did kind of big Bo- Beaux-Arts style uh, triumphant figures and so forth. But Thomas Aikens is a fascinating artist, and um, I learned a lot about him while we were doing a, uh, doing a documentary. Um, and, um, you know, I think one of the secrets to um, career transitions is to keep those interests that you might have from an earlier career. Don't let them die. Uh, keep them up. Um, you know, it doesn't take a lot of energy to stay in touch with developments in American art. Uh, and uh, it keeps that part of your mind alive. So so that's it stood me in good stead throughout my career as a as a. Uh, as an economist. And I think it's, it's fair to say that uh, your father was not just a, a kind of a historian, a, a, a social scientist. He was a, a prominent chronicler of the American West, the West in, in the American art and imagination idea, and just a, a, a prominent social scientist of the American experience. So that probably didn't hurt either in developing tool sets to analyze a wide variety of things, not just a, a, a narrow topic, the way that so much higher education is currently structured. That's right. Um, my father was, uh, he was a historian of the American West, but also um, a um, professor um, uh, of American studies. And um, American studies is a, it's an interdisciplinary discipline. Uh, so if you study American studies, you can study literature, you can study the sciences, you can study the arts. So, uh, you know, ever since I was a child, uh, I got pounded into me the, the benefits of a multidisciplinary approach to uh, studying things, problem solving, thinking about stuff, and kind of an excitement about the resonances across different fields um, that, uh, that, that define culture. Uh, so that stuck with me. I think that, that uh, American studies, that is an interdisciplinary approach to your father, is something that uh, the f- few of us had. I very different background than you, but whatever I was going to do, I was going to, you know, encourage to focus on it and get get the hop on it early. And 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 that's how I think most training is, and that works for a lot of people. But I think there's a hidden gem here in in, in uh, having perspective on careers that comes from a bit of a broader approach. So I think this phase, if I'm not correct, if I got your bio right ended with a, a museum directorship, which uh, would have given you, again, the experience of running an operation, but from an artistic and curatorial perspective. Do you want to discuss that a little bit? That's a first taste of having to make the numbers add up, per- perhaps, if you were responsible for the budgets. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I tried my hand at going to uh, graduate school in art history, and I uh, switched over at some point to an MBA. So while I was getting my MBA, I had an opportunity to be a a director of an art museum in Denver. It was called the Museum of Western Art. 
And uh, it wasn't large, but it was kind of like the Western art version of the Frick Museum. In other words, some real masterpieces of Western American art. George O'Keefe, for example, and uh, Frederick Remington. And, um, you know, just a, a range of images about the American West. Um, and uh, what helped me was that I had a nascent interest in management and business, but also a familiarity with art and culture. So that was a that was my uh, my first and only experience as a museum director. But um, but uh, it, it was fantastic. And so then you continue on with your your MBA, and it looks like you slip slide the slippery slope down an MBA into a PhD. You couldn't help yourself. Yes, you know, but what happened really is that I, in the middle of an MBA, uh, I discovered that I love to do research about businesses, particularly about finance and markets. Um, and you could get great data about what happens to stock prices when some event happens. And you're free to explore all sorts of uh, questions. And um, so I just got hooked on doing that and encouraged by my um, by teachers here at Yale. And uh, I would say not just encouraged, but uh, treating it a little bit like my fair lady situation, which is I was, I was a person that came from the humanities and the arts, and and um, they uh, they encouraged me and talked me into uh, going into something that was very mathematical, very quantitative, uh, and uh, I think it was an experiment personally, but it worked out. Um, uh, very well. I, I took to it. I really enjoyed it and um, found my particular niche in this in this profession of, of, of finance. And what was your dissertation on specifically? Because again, you've branched out and done so many different things. What, what was the topic of the, the dissertation research? Well, the setting was very long-term performances of stock markets. And um, the question at that time, and we're talking a long time ago, is whether or not uh, you could predict the stock market over uh, the next two or three years. In other words, how random was the random walk of stock market prices? And it's worth mentioning here that the time that you're doing your dissertation is sort of, I'm not going to call it the high point, but a period of great enthusiasm about the efficiency of markets and random walks. I don't know if you want to describe that because it, it's not necessarily what would be the number one topic today, but it was very much popular at, at that time in the in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, it was part and parcel of the idea that, um, that there wasn't very much skill. There wasn't really uh, much opportunity to beat the market. I, I guess that's the best way to put it. And um, uh, so that you were theoretically just better off buying an S&P 500 index fund and not trying to predict the market uh, because uh, you were really swimming against a stream full of millions of other people making the same kinds of predictions. And they were probably just a little bit better than you might be. Um, if you were an average investor. And so this is part of the broader uh, efficient market hypothesis and broader um, the emergence of index funds and a change in culture, a paradigm shift, we might say, from one type of investing to a paradigm that's really dominated the last couple of decades, which leans very heavily in the direction that you just described, that it's, it's a very hard exercise. And unless you really have an edge, sort of an index product is, is the way to go. So, so goes that argument. I, as, as you probably know in the audience, 
audience knows have to officially object to that, but not not in this forum, not today. <laughs> so you, you go from museum director to newly minted Yale PhD in quantitative finance, early stock market research, and and off you go. And now you you have uh, I'm say you know sort of a number of years later. We won't say exactly how many uh, for reasons of decorum. But you have, I characterized this in an email to you before, you're a moving target in finance, even within finance, even with someone who's been as, uh, has been in the profession for a while, the breadth of your activity, I think stands out. And I choose to, I could be wrong, but I choose to link it to your, your background. And I, I just want to highlight a couple of things that uh, are there. There is technical finance, there's quantitative finance, you have books and articles on modern portfolio theory, on triple witching hour and volatility, on the elusive, the uh, Higgs boson, the uh, the equity risk premium, the unobserved but long sought after measure. I refer to it as a Higgs boson because when a couple of the University of Chicago uh, Nobel Prize winners were going to Stockholm to collect their, their awards and they were there with some physicists who were collecting their awards for, the, I think, the Higgs boson, uh, the physicists said, at least we finally can see what are what we're getting the award for you can't see yours but you've written on the equity risk premium which is again is this uh, phantom figure which is supposed to be very important in our, all of our day jobs but so you've got the clearly the the quantitative chops and I, I again I don't know whether that's associated whether you were born with them or you picked them up uh, and had to learn them after years of studying art and the American West but in addition to those kind of technical finance topics, you have a lot of writings on on what I consider topical issues, private equity returns, real estate, the weather, the weather matters, governance, endowments, hedge funds. Can you, you know, describe a little bit before I get to some of other your topics, you know, how how you've ranged through you have the luxury of tenured professor to range through finance the way that you have and, and move from one topic to another? Sure. Uh, there are a couple of ways that people can do this. One is by mastering a set of tools. And then once you have some tools for studying uh, a particular market, then you could transfer those tools over to study, studying a different market. So, um, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, I was working on a set of tools to create an index of art prices. Uh, right pretty early in my career, uh, I guess even when I was a graduate student. And that technology was um, was called repeat sale regression, which is a mouthful. But it turns out that, um, that uh, at Yale at that time, uh, Professor Robert Schiller was working on the same technology. And uh, it was a it was great to meet him and, and suddenly discover that there's there's another person on campus that is that is using this technique, but he was using it to study houses and house prices, and the result was something called the Case-Shiller index. So um, that was a uh, that really allowed me to take a a body of knowledge that I had uh, developed in one area and then start doing research in housing and house price index indexes and. Uh, all sorts of things related to the risk and return of, of, of uh, investing in your home. Uh, all of that before the great financial crisis, uh, which it suddenly became relevant after many years of, of work on it. Um, so that's one approach. Um, I think the other approach for me, uh, and I think it maybe um, 
is just uh, my particular way of, of working is that I follow my curiosity pretty uh, quickly. Um, you know, you can get stuck into thinking that you've mastered some body of knowledge and then you're supposed to be the expert on everything related to that particular narrow field. I never felt that I had completely mastered anything, but I was curious about things. And, and I would then, like, for example, um, early in my career, um, this new kind of investment company called a hedge fund was suddenly making news. And uh, people asked, started to ask me about hedge funds. What are they? Uh, you know, do they really outperform? Uh, you know, all sorts of stuff. And then I, I, I thought to myself, well, uh, I don't know. And but I, I should follow this up because, you know, it, it, it's something that seems to be an area of investing that is that endowments are getting into and so on. So that led me to collect a bunch of hedge fund information, to work with some co-authors to try and answer these questions of do they, you know, is there skill in the hedge fund uh, arena? The reason, folks, I just interrupt for one second. For those of you who listened to my uh, new books interview with Jeff Hook, The Myth of Private Equity, it's really hard to tell what a, a hedge fund or a private equity return may be because they're shrouded in mystery partially by design. And so gathering the data, as as Will is describing, is not an insignificant labor and is really, really important. It's it's meant to be hidden. That's part of the allure of, of hedge funds and private equity. So uh, this was a, a, a service, good service that you, that you were providing. Uh, yeah. And, you know, the funny thing is that as um, as we began to collect the data and study it, it looked like hedge funds um, could generate positive risk adjusted rate of return. Uh, so that data actually flew in the face of the efficient market theory. Uh, and uh, so we were a little bit interested, bemused, surprised, excited by that result. And and uh, have uh, continued to work in that area for a bit. But I, I think for me, it's a bit like browsing in one field for a while and then seeing that there's something interesting on the other side of the fence and then moving into that. But it, and, and I would say in, in my field, um, other scholars have been pretty welcoming of somebody coming into their area and uh, working with them or doing research in this. People have been pretty open. Yeah, I, I have to say and recommend people go to your website uh, at Yale, your list of, of publications. It, it's all over the place. And there are a lot of different co-authors. I mean, it's really all over the place. If you didn't have tenure, probably someone would give you a hard time about it. But now from the perspective of 20 or 30 years, it's, uh, it's striking Chinese investments and the art market and medieval Europe and very technical work on the equity risk premium. So this roaming around, I think, and I, I, the, my implied conclusion about this is that there's cross-pollination and fertilization that makes each of these works uh, richer. One of the things that you seem to have a, a real interest in is data sets and coming up with data sets. I encountered some of your work in trying to recreate the uh, 19th century uh, data sets for the U.S. stock market. So the stock market data is pretty good from 1957. Uh, you, uh, Will, and, and your colleagues in the Academy have access to information back to 1926. Laurie and Fisher and Crisp, I do not. I've tried. And then prior to 1926, it is uh, has to be made up, literally. You and others have gone back and uh, 
taken the time to create data sets about uh, share prices and dividends uh, through various times up to 1926 and 19th century, it's really important, I think. I think it's underappreciated in the field of investment that the history of the data sets and the quality of the data sets really, really matters. And conclusions can be drawn about how the stock market was and how it's changed. But if the data is really poor underlying those conclusions about the past, you're going to get bad advice about the present or, or the future. And so it looks like you, you a number of your projects, and I, I personally of great interest to me, are on tabulating data sets. You have Excel spreadsheets that are on your personal website that can still be downloaded from 2009 uh, that are uh, available. They're, they're, they're maybe hard to use, maybe easy to use, but they're there. Someone's making the effort to put together data sets and make them available. So that that it's not just the analysis of material in a variety of topics. It's actually coming up with the data. What would you comment about this time that you have to spend not only building the buildings, but actually creating manufacturing the bricks to create the buildings? Well, I'd say it's something that we both uh, love, which is history. Uh, this, these are numbers, but they're all from records that have survived, just like a historical text. So much of my early work or much of my work now really is you find something that is in printed form uh, that was published 150 years ago, or, or actually, if you go really extremely far back, we've got data that is published or, or written down because you couldn't print it from the 1370s of an early company. Corporation. Please tell the the story in Toulouse of the Bazakel Company, and and uh, I just I literally just put it as a footnote in something I'm working on. It had a five percent dividend yield, and its real return was five percent, which tells you for over six centuries, which tells you something about real returns from investments, from my perspective uh, about dividends. But please tell that story. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, everybody wants to know where. When did corporations begin and why? And I happened to uh, meet up with a couple of scholars in Toulouse, and we both shared an excitement about a, a rarely read book by a, um, by a professor named uh, Germain Sicard, uh, who in 1950s did an enormous amount of research about these corporations that began as mill companies in the Middle Ages. And they, um, but they were all capitalized um, by uh, by investors, and those investors held shares. And those companies lasted into the 19th century, actually 20th century. And they had price records. I mean, not daily Amsterdam exchange records. That that's only from 1602. But the but they had price records in Toulouse of some sort that you could oh, work with. Absolutely, um, the. Um, there are records of, of, of price uh, of sales of these shares most years uh, throughout the time period from about 16, I'm sorry, 1530 on up uh, so that we can create a pretty good annual index of, of the shares. And for you, what's great is the dividends. Uh, and, uh, and when then we were able to look and see that investors were actually pricing or figuring out prices based upon their prediction of future dividends, which is a real reasonable thing to do. But we pretty much could infer from the price patterns that they were rationally, you know, forecasting future dividend growth. And, and that's what the prices told us. So, um, 
that was quite exciting because uh, all of modern finance dates mostly to the, you know, the late 19th, early 20th century. But these people in practice were setting good prices is a good way to think about it. And again, strictly talking shop here, but uh, my line of business that the real returns were the dividend returns, capital appreciation and dividend growth and uh, inflation more or less offset each other over time. I haven't gotten through the article because it's in the Journal of Financial Economics, which you may or may not know to outsiders, is the one that is behind the highest, thickest, most uh, insurmountable paywall. It's not available through JSTOR. It's not available through the Journal of Portfolio Management. So I can't get that article. So I'm going to have to ask you for a PDF of that afterwards. But the but this abstract had that, uh, you know, the return basically was the, the cash return uh, of the dividend. And I'm assuming it's because dividend growth was offset and capital appreciation were offset by inflation. So the real returns were the dividend returns. So data sets, yes, uh, very, you know, really, really important for us. I'm currently working on it a project that in, tries to inform or place in context the current absence of dividends in the US market using dividend sets from you know the last couple of centuries so it's really really good so but there's an inter- an abiding interest in the data and the underlying data and the history but again you you have uh, uh, jumped some jumped some of the walls and you got into you mentioned this art market but you, you know you did seem to circle back to art market prices you did seem to circle back to your your PBS days on uh, screenplays and trying to apply your quantitative finance uh, skills to 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 those uh, those things can you describe a little bit about that those circling back exercises of finance involving uh, art and entertainment yes of course um, I will say that when I was in graduate school um, I wrote actually two dissertations. One of them was about stock market efficiency and long-term performance. But another one that um, you could say I wrote alongside that was um, a set of papers about uh, long-term investment in the art market um, using these techniques that we now use for housing uh, and also about housing in the, in the personal portfolio. Um, and then a very technical econometric study of the, the methods that you use to, to work on assets that we now actually call non-fungible assets uh, after NFTs. Right. Let's, let's get a token for them. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so a non-fungible asset is something that um, there's no exact replica of so that money is fungible because $1 bill is just like another dollar bill. But uh, non-fungible, uh, non-fungible assets, well, there could be two houses right next to each other, but one has a chimney and the other one has a porch. So how do you value those things? That's a really interesting problem because we have to deal with that constantly in our, in our, in our markets. And we don't really have markets that uh, talk about a messy valuation problem. Uh, that's the problem that Zillow set out to solve. And uh, it's still not a perfect uh, tool. So anyway, that was this kind of shadow dissertation is something that I I pursued because I loved uh, working on art and the econometrics of it. And then I was able to take that and also publish it. So, you know, I found myself in an interesting position of uh, of being one of about 12 people in the world who were economists that were interested in the art market. And uh, so that was... um, that stood me in good stead. I understand uh, from uh, mutual acquaintances that that has led to a number of engagements and gigs for you, which are probably enjoyable in terms of uh, serving on boards and committees and so forth involving the the economics of the art world. 
Yeah. Uh, one thing that um, arose early in my uh, academic career is, is because of that expertise is there was a stretch of time whenever a major artist died and the estate had to pay taxes. You got a call? I got a call. And uh, so um, I had a chance to be involved in at least one of them, which is public information, which is when Andy Warhol passed away, uh, how much was his estate worth? And and that's a, a great problem because there were lots of his works of art left in the estate. And, and, and you ask yourself, could you suddenly sell all of them at once? Well, maybe not. Then could you dribble them out? Well, I don't know. How long would it take? So that's, that's a kind of a liquidity problem that's interesting. So in, in recent years, kind of the culmination of, of these various interests, you've been really able to go deep in some of the historical issues. We discussed the Bazakal firm and in, in, how did you pronounce the firm or how did they pronounce the, the, the Toulouse firm with the sixth six century record? Well, we may um, not know how they pronounced it because you may think it's French, but it's Occitan. Because uh, so I'm guessing it was uh, Bosical. Bosical. But uh, I've been told by my colleague, my colleagues there that that study Occitan, uh, that it was the Honor del Bosical, which is the name for the company itself. I'm so sorry I asked that. Uh, in addition to your other historical work, you came out with a big book in 2016. That's where I first encountered you. Money changes everything. You're working on data sets. You studied the 1720 stock bubble, uh, fixed income government securities bubble and stock bubble. You've, you've really had the ability to, to go long in history as well in the last few years. And, and that's, again, where I, I find it fascinating. You, you do that because I think you have an abiding interest in it. How, how do your students react to that, your colleagues, that is the conclusion? Most people who want to go to Yale and get an MBA or a PhD are trying to make a buck on Wall Street. And here's here's this highly prolific guy who writes about what happened in 1720. He's quite certain that it's relevant to what's going on on Wall Street, but they may not. How, how do you how do you transport your conclusions about historical data sets to the people who show up in your MBA classes? I think when you are when you have a profession, you're always curious about what its role in society might be. And um, so I found my students have a natural curiosity along those lines. I mean, it's not easy to think to yourself, well, I'm going to be a banker because I want to be a millionaire and a multimillionaire and retire at X. You know, everybody's looking for meaning in their careers. And um, there's an enormous amount that finance contributes to society. And students in that, that go into finance are quite excited to think about that and position themselves in that uh, in that social matrix so um, so that's one thing that I think um, uh, you know makes the finance financial history interesting to people the other thing um, is that you know everybody comes from an educated background where they've the American educational system particularly uh, exposes undergraduates to a whole range of topics and everybody's taken some history. And so this this will resonate with them. They may say, well, I, I heard about the French Revolution, but I didn't know that the paper money that they were creating at that time created all sorts of problems. So it's a it's a hook into another part of their lives that uh, that they um, that's meaningful to them. So uh, that's one of the ways that I take it. 
So I, I, I want to kind of wrap up a little bit with some conclusions, uh, and maybe they're justified, at least from my, exper- my experience, the, the benefits of, of, say, being a historian in, in the capital markets is I, I generally do believe that you know, a better understanding of the past helps me navigate the present and, in theory, the future, for better or for worse, and hence why I'm a dividend person, though I've been out of sync with my times for the last 30 years. But it still is the case that when I encounter a problem, I want to know what the history of the problem is, not just the problem, but the history of the problem. I want to see how other people try to solve the problem and uh, whether there were tools or implements that are available that were tried that may be tried again. And uh, that's just the, the way I'm wired. I find that some people are some you know, colleagues, students, and so forth amenable to that, and, and some are not. That is the lesson of interdisciplinary work or, or per- perspective, call it perspective, is hard. I, you, you mentioned you know, your students at Yale are going to be fairly advanced and thoughtful and, and fairly broad, but it's still, I, I think, getting, getting people to be interdisciplinary is a hard sell, and uh, it's not for everyone. Some people just aren't, aren't wired for it. They want to stick, stick to what the, the textbook says, and that's about it. And I, I don't know if you have any any kind of closing thoughts on the benefits of encouraging people to take a broader perspective, a detour, a whether it's an academic detour or just a, a curiosity detour, as you characterized it, so that when they circle back, uh, they have that perspective of how a problem was worked out in a different area or in a different time and place. You know, I'm interested right now in the current generation of uh, people involved in business that um, seems to be taking a broader view of the role of business in general. Um, the uh, focus, for example, in our field on ESG, uh, environmental, social, and governmental issues, um, is quite different than might have been 20 or 30 years ago. Not that there wasn't an awareness of, of, of those issues, but I think that they've taken a front seat um, when people are thinking about investing or more importantly, sort of corporate strategic decision making. Uh, and so I chalk that up to a view of a multi-perspective, uh, you know, impl- E and S and G, all those three things are different perspectives. And yet somehow uh, the generation uh, of, of leaders and future leaders now really have, are taking it to heart that they have to consider them. They may not um, b- believe that, they're, um, that they add or subtract value when you address them, but they know that they're important. So um, I think, uh, at least from my perspective, the educational process, you know, te- when you teach, teaching people to put on different hats, consider different pictures for a while, um, I, I think that that's going to stand us all in very good stead going forward. I think the days when one could say I'm the master of one specific technique and that will stand me for my whole career are fast waning because, for example, uh, you know, people who are really good at statistics and econometrics in forecasting, suddenly they have to face the fact that machine learning methods uh, are something that most people can push a few buttons and bang, it's a better model. So uh, it better to have learned about machine learning than mastered regression analysis to the nth degree. 
Well, I, I certainly share in that sentiment uh, about pushing for breadth and perspective, and you have shown how it's worked in your career and also provide a template for others. I, I in particular want to call out your 2016 book, Money Changes Everything. It's really just an incredibly interesting and well-written presentation on the history of finance and the function that it serves in society. Everyone should read that book. My guest has been uh, Will Getzman. He is a professor of finance at Yale. He is a broad interesting person. And that's why we've had him on the show. Will, thank you so much uh, for, for being my guest. Daniel, thank you very much. This was a fun conversation.